Book Seven, Chapter Fifty One of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Seven, Chapter Fifty One. There is little more to tell. The man who had lived so fast was no long time dying. The eager soul was swift in this as in all else. The day after Ellesmere's return from Yorwell, where he left the squire still alive, the telegram announcing the death reached Bedford Square a few hours after Robert's arrival. Edwardson came up to see him and examine him. He discovered tubercular disease of the larynx, which begins with slight hoarseness and weakness, and develops into one of the most rapid forms of phthisis. In his opinion, it had been originally set up by the effects of the chill at Petit Dal, acting upon a constitution never strong, and at that moment peculiarly susceptible to mischief and, of course, the speaking and preaching of the last four months had done enormous harm. It was with great outward composure that Ellesmere received his arrêt de mort at the hands of the young doctor, who announced the result of his examination with a hesitating lip and a voice which struggled in vain to preserve its professional calm. He knew too much of medicine himself to be deceived by Edmondson's optimist remarks as to the possible effect of a warm climate like Algiers on his condition. He sat down, resting his head on his hands a moment. Then, wringing Edmondson's hand, he went out feebly to find his wife. Catherine had been waiting in the dining-room, her whole soul one dry, tense misery. She stood looking out of the window, taking curious heed of a Jewish wedding that was going on in the square, of the preposterous bouquets of the coachman and the gaping circle of errand-boys. How pinched the bride looked in the north wind! When the door opened and Catherine saw her husband come in, her young husband, to whom she had been married not yet four years, with that indescribable look in the eyes which seemed to divine and confirm all those terrors which had been shaking her during her agonised waiting, there followed a moment between them which words cannot render. When it ended, that half-articulate convulsion of love and anguish, she found herself sitting on the sofa beside him, his head on her breast, his hand clasping hers. "'Do you wish me to go, Catherine?' he asked her gently. "'To Algiers?' Her eyes implored for her. "'Then I will,' he said, but with a long sigh. "'It will only prolong it two months,' he thought. "'And does one not owe it to the people for whom one has tried to live, "'to make a brave end amongst them? "'Ah, no, no, those two months are hers.' So without any outward resistance he let the necessary preparations be made. It wrung his heart to go, but he could not wring hers by staying. After his interview with Robert, and his further interview with Catherine, to whom he gave the most minute recommendations and directions, with a reverent gentleness which seemed to make the true state of the case more ghastly plain to the wife than ever, Edmondson went off to Flaxman. Flaxman heard his news with horror. "'A bad case, you say? Advanced?' "'A bad case.' Emerson repeated gloomily. He had been fighting against it too long under that absurd delusion of clergyman's throat. If only men would not insist upon being their own doctors. And, of course, that going down to Muirwell the other day was madness. I shall go with him to Algiers, and probably stay a week or two. To think of that life, that career, cut short. This is a queer sort of world. When Flaxman went over to Bedford Square in the afternoon, he went like a man going himself to execution. In the hall he met Catherine. 
"'You have seen Dr. Edmondson?' she asked, pale and still, except for a little nervous quivering of the lip. He stooped and kissed her hand. "'Yes. He says he goes with you to Algiers. I will come after, if you will have me. The climate may do wonders.' She looked at him with the most heart-rending of smiles. "'Will you go in to Robert? He's in the study.' He went, in trepidation, and found Robert lying tucked up on the sofa, apparently reading. "'Don't, don't, old fellow,' he said affectionately, as Flaxman almost broke down. "'Comes to all of us sooner or later. Whenever it comes, we think it too soon. I believe I've been sure of it for some time. We are such strange creatures. It's been so present to me lately that life was too good to last. You remember the sort of feeling one used to have as a child about some treat in the distance?' that it was too much joy, that something was sure to come between you and it? Well, in a sense, I've had my joy, the first fruits of it, at least." But as he threw his arms behind his head, leaning back on them, Flaxman saw the eyes darken and the naive, boyish mouth contract, and knew that under all these brave words there was a heart which hungered. "'How strange!' Robert went on reflectively. Yesterday I was travelling, walking like other men, a member of society. Today I am an invalid, in the true sense, a man no longer. The world has done with me. A barrier I shall never recross has sprung up between me and it. Flaxman, tonight is the story-telling. Will you read to them? I have the book here prepared, some scenes from David Copperfield. And will you tell them? A hard task, but Flaxman undertook it. Never did he forget the scene. Some ominous rumour had spread, and the new brotherhood was besieged. Impossible to give the reading. A hall full of strained, upturned faces listened to Flaxman's announcement, and to Ellesmere's messages of cheer and exhortation, and then a wild wave of grief spread through the place. The street outside was blocked, men looking dismally into each other's eyes, women weeping, children sobbing for sympathy all feeling themselves at once shelterless and forsaken. When Ellesmere heard of it, he turned on his face and asked even Catherine to leave him for a while. The preparations were pushed on. The new brotherhood had just become the subject of an animated discussion in the press, and London was touched by the news of its young founder's breakdown. Catherine found herself besieged by offers of help of various kinds. One offer Flaxman persuaded her to accept— it was the loan of a villa at El Biar, on the hill above Algiers, belonging to a connection of his own. A resident on the spot was to take all trouble off their hands. They were to find servants ready for them, and every comfort. Catherine made every arrangement, met every kindness, with a self-reliant calm that never failed. But it seemed to Flaxman that her heart was broken, that half of her, in feeling, was already on the other side of this horror which stared them all in the face. Was it his perception of it which stirred Robert after a while to a greater hopefulness of speech, a constant bright dwelling on the flowery sunshine for which they were about to exchange the fog and cold of London? The momentary revival of energy was more pitiful to Flaxman than his first quiet resignation. He himself wrote every day to Rose, strange love letters, in which the feeling that could not be avowed ran as a fiery undercurrent through all the sad brotherly record of the invalid's doings and prospects. There was deep trouble in Longwindale. Mrs. Laban was tearful and hysterical, 
and wished to rush off to town to see Catherine. Agnes wrote in distress that her mother was quite unfit to travel, showing her own inner conviction, too, that the poor thing would only be an extra burden on the Ellesmeres if the journey were achieved. Rose wrote, asking to be allowed to go with them to Algiers. And after a little consultation it was so arranged, Mrs. Leyburn being tenderly persuaded, Robert himself writing, to stay where she was. The morning after the interview with Edmondson, Robert sent for Murray Edwards. They were closeted together for nearly an hour. Edwards came out with the look of one who has been lifted into heavenly places. "'I thank God,' he said to Catherine, with deep emotion, "'that I ever knew him. I pray that I may be found worthy to carry out my pledges to him.' When Catherine went into the study, she found Robert gazing into the fire with dreamy eyes. He started, and looked up to her with a smile. Murray Edwards has promised himself heart and soul to the work. If necessary, he will give up his chapel to carry it on. But we hope it will be possible to work them together. What a brick he is! What a blessed chance it was that took me to that breakfast party at Flaxman's! The rest of the time before departure he spent almost entirely in consultation and arrangement with Edwards. It was terrible how rapidly worse he seemed to grow, directly the situation had declared itself, and the determination not to be ill had been perforce overthrown. But his struggle against breathlessness and weakness, and all the other symptoms of his state during these last days, was heroic. On the last day of all, by his own persistent wish, a certain number of members of the Brotherhood came to say good-bye to him. They came in, one by one, MacDonald first. The old Scotchman, from the height of his sixty years of tough, weather-beaten manhood, looked down on Robert with a fatherly concern. Hey, Mr. Ellesmere, but it's a fine place you're going to, they say. You do well, they say, you do well. And as for the work, sir, we'll keep it up. We'll not let the deal make hay of it, and we knows it, the whole year, he added with a phraseology which did more honour to the Calvinism of his blood than the philosophy of his training. Lestrange came in with a pale, sharp face, and said little in his ten minutes. But Robert divined in him a sort of repressed curiosity and excitement, akin to that of Voltaire turning his feverish eyes towards Le Grand Secret. You, who preach to us that consciousness and God and the soul are the only realities, are you so sure of it now you are dying as you were in health? Are your courage, your certainty, what they were? These were the sort of questions that seemed to underlie the man's spoken words. There was something trying in it, but Robert did his best to put aside his consciousness of it. He thanked him for his help in the past, and implored him to stand by the young society and Mr. Edwards. I shall hardly come back, Lestrange. But does one man matter? One soldier falls, another presses forward watchmaker rose, then paused a moment, a flush passing over him. "'We can't stand without you,' he said abruptly. Then, seeing Robert's look of distress, he seemed to cast about for something reassuring to say, but could find nothing. Robert at last held out his hand with a smile, and he went. He left Ellesmere struggling with a pang of horrible depression. In reality there was no man who worked harder at the new brotherhood during the months that followed than Lestrange. He worked under perpetual protest from the Frondeur within him, but something stung him on, on, till a habit had been formed which promises to be the joy and salvation of his later life. 
Was it the haunting memory of that thin figure, the hand clinging to the chair, the white appealing look? Others came and went, till Catherine trembled for the consequences. She herself took in Mrs. Richards and her children, comforting the sobbing creatures afterwards with a calmness born of her own despair. Robson, in the last stage himself, sent him a grimly characteristic message. "'I shall solve the riddle, sir, before you. The doctor gives me three days. For the first time in my life I shall know what you are all still guessing at. May the blessing of one who never blessed thing or creature before he saw you go with you.' After it all, Robert sank on the sofa with a groan. "'No more,' he said hoarsely. "'No more. Now for air, the sea. Tomorrow, wife, tomorrow. Cras ingens it rebimus aequo. Ah, me! I leave my new salamis behind.' But on that last evening he insisted on writing letters to Langham and Newcombe. "'I will spare Langham the sight of me,' he said, smiling sadly and I must bear myself the sight of Newcombe. I could not bear it, I think. But I must say good-bye, for I love them both." Next day, two hours after the Ellesmeres had left for Dover, a cab drove up to their house in Bedford Square, and Newcombe descended from it. "'Gone, sir, two hours ago,' said the housemaid, and the priest turned away with an involuntary gesture of despair. To his dying day the passionate heart bore the burden of that too late, believing that even at the eleventh hour Elsmere would have been granted to his prayers. He might even have followed them, but that a great retreat for clergy he was just on the point of conducting made it impossible. Flaxman went down with them to Dover. Rose, in the midst of all her new and womanly care for her sister and Robert, was very sweet to him. In any other circumstances, he told himself, he could easily have broken down the flimsy barrier between them, but in those last twenty-four hours he could press no claim of his own. When the steamer cast loose, the girl, hanging over the side, stood watching the tall figure on the pier against the grey January sky. Catherine caught her look and attitude, and could have cried aloud in her own gnawing pain. Flaxman got a cheery letter from Edmondson describing their arrival. Their journey had gone well. Even the odious passage from Marseilles had been tolerable. Little Mary had proved a model traveller. The villa was luxurious, the weather good. "'I've got rooms close by them in the vice-consul's cottage,' wrote Edmondson. "'Imagine, within sixty hours of leaving London in a January fog, finding yourself tramping over wild marigolds and mignonette, under a sky and through an air as balmy as those of an English June, when an English June behaves itself. Elsmere's room overlooks the bay.' the great plain of the Medici dotted with villages, and the grand range of the Giorgiora, backed by snowy summits, one could hardly tell from the clouds. His spirits are marvellous. He's plunged in the history of Algiers, raving about one Fromenton, learning Spanish even. The wonderful purity and warmth of the air seem to have relieved the Glarynx greatly. He breathes and speaks much more easily than when we left London. I sometimes feel, when I look at him, as though in this, as in all else, he were unlike the common sons of men, as though to him it might be possible to subdue even this fell disease. Elsmere himself wrote, I had not heard the half, oh, Flaxman, an enchanted land, air, sun, warmth, roses, orange blossom, 
new potatoes, green peas, veiled eastern beauties, domed mosques and preaching mardis, everything that feeds the outer and the inner man. To throw the window open at waking to the depth of sunlit air between us and the curve of the bay is for the moment heaven. One's soul seems to escape one, to pour itself into the luminous blue of the morning. I'm better. I breathe again. Mary flourishes exceedingly. She lives mostly on oranges, and has been adopted by sixty nuns who inhabit the convent over the way, and sell us the most delicious butter and cream. I imagine, if she were a trifle older, her mother would hardly view the proceedings of these dear Beroserid women with so much equanimity. As for Rose, she writes more letters than Clarissa, and receives more than an editor of the Times. I have the strongest views, as you know, as to the vanity of letter-writing. There was a time when you shared them, but there are circumstances and conjunctures, alas, in which no man can be sure of his friend or his friend's principles. Kind friend, good fellow, go off into Elgood Street. Tell me everything about everybody. It is possible, after all, that I may live to come back to them. But a week later, alas, the letters fell into a very different strain. The weather had changed, and it turned indeed damp and rainy, the natives, of course, declaring that such gloom and storm in January had never been known before. Edmondson wrote in discouragement. Ellesmere had a touch of cold, had been confined to bed, and almost speechless. His letter was full of medical detail, from which Flaxman gathered that, in spite of the rally of the first ten days, it was clear that the disease was attacking constantly fresh tissue. "'He's very depressed, too,' said Edmondson. "'I've never seen him so yet. He sits and looks at us in the evening sometimes with eyes that wring one's heart. It is as though, after having for a moment allowed himself to hope, he found it a doubly hard task to submit.' "'Ah, that depression! It was the last eclipse through which a radiant soul was called to pass. But while it lasted, it was black indeed.' The implacable reality, obscured at first by the emotion and excitement of farewells, and then by a brief spring of hope and returning vigour, showed itself now in all its stern nakedness. Sat down, as it were, eye to eye with Ellesmere. Immovable. Ineluctable. There were certain features of the disease itself which were specially trying to such a nature. The long silences it enforced were so unlike him, seemed already to withdraw him so pitifully from their yearning grasp. In these dark days he would sit crouching over the wood-fire in the little saddle, or lie, drawn to the window, looking out on the rainstorms, bowing the ilexes, or scattering the meshes of clematis, silent, almost always gentle, but turning sometimes on Catherine, or on Mary playing at his feet, eyes which, as Edmonton said, wrung the heart. But in reality, under the husband's depression, and under the wife's inexhaustible devotion, a combat was going on, which reached no third person, but was throughout poignant and tragic to the highest degree. Catherine was making her last effort, Robert his last stand. As you know, ever since that passionate submission of the wife which had thrown her morally at her husband's feet, there had lingered at the bottom of her heart one last supreme hope. All persons of the older Christian type attribute a special importance to the moment of death. While the man of science looks forward to his last hour as a moment of certain intellectual weakness, and calmly warns his friends beforehand that he is to be judged by the utterances of health 
and not by those of physical collapse. The Christian believes that on the confines of eternity the veil of flesh shrouding the soul grows thin and transparent, and that the glories and the truths of heaven are visible with a special clearness and authority to the dying. It was for this moment, either in herself or in him, that Catherine's unconquerable faith had been patiently and dumbly waiting. Either she would go first, and death would wing her poor last words to him with a magic and power not their own, or, when he came to leave her, the veil of doubt would fall away perforce from a spirit as pure as it was humble, and the eternal light, the light of the crucified, shine through. Probably, if there had been no breach in Robert's serenity, Catherine's poor last effort would have been much feebler, briefer, more hesitating. But when she saw him plunged for a short space in mortal discouragement, in a sombreness that as the days went on had its points and crests of feverish irritation, her anguished pity came to the help of her creed. Robert felt himself besieged, driven within the citadel, her being urging, grappling with his. In little half-articulate words and ways, in her attempts to draw him back to some of their old religious books and prayers, in those kneeling vigils he often found her maintaining at night beside him, he felt a persistent attack which nearly, in his weakness, overthrew him. For reason and thought grow tired like muscles and nerves. Some of the greatest and most daring thinkers of the world have felt this pitiful longing to be at one with those who love them, at whatever cost, before the last farewell. And the simpler Christian faith has still to create around it those venerable associations and habits which buttress individual feebleness and diminish the individual effort. One early February morning, just before dawn, Robert stretched out his hand for his wife and found her kneeling beside him. The dim, mingled light showed him her face vaguely, her clasped hands, her eyes. He looked at her in silence, she at him. There seemed to be a strange shock as of battle between them. Then he drew her head down to him. "'Catherine,' he said to her in a feeble, intense whisper, "'would you leave me without comfort, without help, at the end?' "'Oh, my beloved,' she cried under her breath, throwing her arms round him, "'if you would but stretch out your hand to the true comfort, the true help.' Lamb of God, sacrifice for us?" He stroked her hair tenderly. My weakness might yield. My true, best self, never. I know whom I have believed. Oh, my darling, be content. Your misery, your prayers, hold me back from God, from that truth and that trust which can alone be honestly mine. Submit, my wife. Leave me in God's hands. She raised her head. His eyes were bright with fever, his lips trembling, his whole look heavenly. She bowed herself again with a quiet burst of tears, and an indescribable self-abasement. They had had their last struggle, and once more he had conquered. Afterwards the cloud lifted from him. Depression and irritation disappeared. It seemed to her often as though he lay already on the breast of God. Even her wifely love grew timid and awestruck. Yet he did not talk much of immortality, of reunion. 
It was like a scrupulous child that dares not take for granted more than its father has allowed it to know. At the same time, it was plain to those about him that the only realities to him in a world of shadows were God, love, the soul. One day he suddenly caught Catherine's hands, drew her face to him, and studied it with his glowing and hollow eyes, as though he would draw it into his soul. "'He made it,' he said hoarsely, as he let her go. "'This love, this yearning, and in life he only makes us yearn that he may satisfy. He cannot lead us to the end, and disappoint the craving he himself set in us. No, no, could, could you, could I, do it?' and he the source of love or justice. Flaxman arrived a few days afterwards. Edmondson had started for London the night before, leaving Ellesmere better again, able to drive and even walk a little, and well looked after by a local doctor of ability. As Flaxman, tramping up behind his carriage, climbed the long hill to LBR, he saw the whole marvellous place in a white light of beauty, the bay, the city, the mountains, olive-yard and orange-grove, drawn in pale tints on luminous air. Suddenly, at the entrance of a steep and narrow lane, he noticed a slight figure standing, a parasol against the sun. "'We thought you would like to be shown the short-cut up the hill,' said Rose's voice, strangely demure and shy. "'The man can drive round.' A grip of the hand, a word to the driver, and they were alone in the high-walled lane, which was really the old road up the hill, before the French brought zigzags and civilization. She gave him news of Robert, better than he had expected. Under the influence of one of the natural reactions that wait on illness, the girl's tone was cheerful, and Flaxman's spirits rose. They talked of the splendour of the day, the discomforts of the steamer, the picturesqueness of the landing, of anything and everything but the hidden something which was responsible for the dancing brightness in his eyes, the occasional swift veiling of her own. Then, at an angle of the lane, where a little spring ran cool and brown into a moss-grown trough, where the blue broke joyously through the grey cloud of olive wood, where not a sight or sound was to be heard of all the busy life which hides and nestles along the hill, he stopped, his hands seizing hers. "'How long?' he said, flushing, his light overcoat falling back from his strong, well-made frame. From August to February? How long? No more. It was most natural, nay, inevitable. For the moment death stood aside, and love asserted itself. But this is no place to chronicle what it said. And he had hardly asked, and she had hardly yielded, before the same misgiving, the same shrinking, seized on the lovers themselves. They sped up the hill, they crept into the house, far apart, it was agreed that neither of them should say a word. But with that extraordinarily quick perception that sometimes goes with such a state as his, Elsmere had guessed the position of things before he and Flaxman had been half an hour together. He took a boyish pleasure in making his friend confess himself, and when Flaxman left him, at once sent for Catherine and told her. Catherine, coming out afterwards, met Flaxman in the little tiled hall, how she had aged and blanched. She stood a moment opposite to him, in her plain long dress with its white collar and cuffs, her face working a little. "'We are so glad,' she said, but almost with a sob. "'God bless you!' 
and wringing his hand, she passed away from him, hiding her eyes, but without a sound. When they met again she was quite self-contained and bright, talking much, both with him and Rose, about the future. And one little word of Rose's must be recorded here, for those who have followed her through these four years. It was at night, when Robert, with smiles, had driven them out of doors to look at the moon over the bay, from the terrace just beyond the windows. They had been sitting on the balustrade, talking of Ellesmere. In this nearness to death Rose had lost her mocking ways, but she was shy and difficult, and Flaxman felt it all very strange and did not venture to woo her much. When all at once he felt her hand steal, trembling, a little white suppliant into his, and her face against his shoulder. "'You won't—you won't ever be angry with me for making you wait like that? It was impertinent. It was like a child playing tricks.' Flaxman was deeply shocked by the change in Robert. He was terribly emaciated. They could only talk at rare intervals in the day, and it was clear that his nights were often one long struggle for breath. But his spirits were extraordinarily even, and his days occupied to a point Flaxman could hardly have believed. He would creep downstairs at eleven, read his English letters, among them always some from Elgood Street, write his answers to them, those difficult scrawls are among the treasured archives of a society which is fast gathering to itself some of the best life in England. Then often fall asleep with fatigue. After food there would come a short drive, or if the day was very warm, an hour or two of sitting outside, generally his best time for talking. He had a wheeled chair in which Flaxman would take him across to the convent garden, a dream of beauty. Overhead an orange canopy, leaf and blossom and golden fruit, all in simultaneous perfection. Underneath a revel of every imaginable flower, narcissus and anemones, geraniums and clematis, and above all hedges of monthly roses, dark red and pale alternately, making a rose-leaf carpet under their feet. Through the tree-trunks shone the white, sun-warmed convent, and far beyond were glimpses of downward-trending valleys edged by twinkling sea. Here, sensitive and receptive to his last hour, Ellesmere drank in beauty and delight, talking, too, whenever it was possible to him, of all things in heaven and earth. Then, when he came home, he would have out his books and fall to some old critical problem, his worn and scored Greek testament always beside him, the quick eye making its way through some new monograph or other the parched lips opening every now and then to call Flaxman's attention to some fresh light on an obscure point, only to relinquish the effort again and again with an unfailing patience. But though he would begin as ardently as ever, he could not keep his attention fixed to these things very long. Then it would be the turn of his favourite poets, Wordsworth, Tennyson, Virgil, Virgil perhaps most frequently. Flaxman would read the Aeneid aloud to him, Robert following the passages he loved best in a whisper, his hand resting the while in Catherine's. And then Mary would be brought in, and he would lie watching her while she played. "'I've had a letter,' he said to Flaxman one afternoon, "'from a broad church clergyman in the Midlands, who imagines me to be still militant in London, protesting against the absurd and wasteful isolation of the new brotherhood.' He asked me why, instead of leaving the church, I did not join the Church Reform Union, 
why I did not attempt to widen the church from within, and why we in Elgood Street are not now in organic connection with the new broad church settlement in East London. I believe I have written him rather a sharp letter. I could not help it. It was borne in on me to tell him that it is all owing to him and his brethren that we are in the muddle we are in to-day. Miracle is to our time what the law was to the early Christians. We must make up our minds about it one way or the other. And if we decide to throw it over as Paul threw over the law, then we must fight as he did. There is no help in subterfuge, no help in anything but a perfect sincerity. We must come out of it. The ground must be cleared. Then may come the rebuilding. Religion itself, the peace of generations to come, is at stake. If we could wait indefinitely while the church widened, well and good. But we have but the one life, the one chance of saying the word or playing the part assigned us. On another occasion in the convent garden he broke out with, I often lie here, Flaxman, wondering at the way in which men become the slaves of some metaphysical word, personality, or intelligence, or what not. What meaning can they have as applied to God? Herbert Spencer is quite right. We no sooner attempt to define what we mean by a personal God than we lose ourselves in labyrinths of language and logic. But why attempt it at all? I like that French saying, Quand on me demande ce que c'est que Dieu, je l'ignore. Quand on ne me le demande pas, je le sais très bien. No, we cannot realise him in words. We can only live in him and die to him. On another occasion he said, speaking to Catherine of the Squire and of Merrick's account of his last year of life, How selfish one is, always, when one least thinks of it. How could I have forgotten him so completely as I did during that new brotherhood time? Where, what is he now? Ah, if somewhere, somehow, one could... He did not finish the sentence, but the painful yearning of his look finished it for him. But the days passed on, and the voice grew rarer, the strength feebler. By the beginning of March all coming downstairs was over. He was entirely confined to his room, almost to his bed. Then there came a horrible week, when no narcotics took effect, when every night was a wrestle for life, which it seemed must be the last. They had a good nurse, but Flaxman and Catherine mostly shared the watching between them. One morning he had just dropped into a fevered sleep. Catherine was sitting by the window, gazing out into a dawn world of sun which reminded her of the summer sunrises at Petit Dal. She looked the shadow of herself. Spiritually, too, she was the shadow of herself. Her life was no longer her own. She lived in him, in every look of those eyes, in every movement of that wasted frame. As she sat there, her Bible on her knee, her strained, unseeing gaze resting on the garden and the sea, a sort of hallucination took possession of her. It seemed to her that she saw the form of the Son of Man passing over the misty slope in front of her, that the dim, majestic figure turned and beckoned. In her half-dream she fell on her knees. "'Master!' she cried in agony. "'I cannot leave him. Call me not. My life is here. I have no heart.' It beats in his. And the figure passed on, the beckoning hand dropping at its side. She followed it with a sort of anguish, 
but it seemed to her as though mind and body were alike incapable of moving, that she would not if she could. Then suddenly a sound from behind startled her. She turned, her trance shaken off in an instant, and saw Robert sitting up in bed. For a moment her lover, her husband of the early days, was before her as she ran to him. But he did not see her. An ecstasy of joy was on his face. The whole man bent forward, listening. The child's cry! Thank God! Oh, Mary! Catherine! Thank God! And she knew that he stood again on the stairs at Muirwell in that September night which gave them their firstborn, and that he thanked God because her pain was over. An instant's strained looking, and sinking back into her arms, he gave two or three gasping breaths, and died. Five days later Flaxman and Rose brought Catherine home. It was supposed that she would return to her mother at Burwood. Instead, she settled down again in London, and not one of those whom Robert Ellesmere had loved was forgotten by his widow. Every Sunday morning, with her child beside her, she worshipped in the old ways. Every Sunday afternoon saw her black-veiled figure sitting motionless in a corner of the Elgood Street Hall. In the week she gave all her time and money to the various works of charity which she had started. But she held her peace. Many were grateful to her, some loved her, none understood her. She lived for one hope only, and the years passed all too slowly. The new brotherhood still exists, and grows. There are many who imagined that, as it had been raised out of the earth by Ellesmere's genius, so it would sink with him. Not so. He would have fought the struggle to victory with surpassing force, with a brilliancy and rapidity none after him could rival. But the struggle was not his. His effort was but a fraction of the effort of the race. In that effort, and in the divine force behind it, is our trust as was his. Others I doubt not, if not we, the issue of our toils shall see, and, they forgotten and unknown, young children gather as their own the harvest that the dead had shown. End of Book 7, Chapter 51 End of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward